Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor, a digital resource for the multidisciplinary cancer team. My name is Dr. Rahul Banerjee, and I'm one of the editorial members. March is Multiple Myeloma Awareness Month, and I'll continue my interviews with various faculty across the country who are experts in important topics in myeloma that we sometimes don't talk about as much at our annual meetings. So today, it is my honor to speak with Dr. Neha Corday. Dr. Corday is an assistant professor in the myeloma service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. She has published extensively about uh, two topics we'll be discussing today. One, quality of life among patients with myeloma, and two, the potential for digital tools, both passive and active, to help us care for our patients with myeloma. Dr. Corday, Neha, if I may, it's a pleasure to meet with you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So um, I'll start with quality of life and why it matters to multiple myeloma patients. I know you and I are both familiar with that paper from a couple of years back that actually showed that patients with myeloma have ambulatory patients with myeloma have worse quality of life than patients with any other cancer, including even pancreatic cancer. It's obviously not a competition of any sort, but it's telling uh, for our patients. Why do you think that is? Why do you think quality of life is so historically poor uh, for our patients that we treat? Yeah, that's a great question. I've actually thought about this a lot. Um, and more so since I've been really digging into quality of life uh, research and really trying to understand what it is that our patients are feeling and experiencing when I see them in the clinic. I think one of the things is, is that this multiple myeloma is really sort of this unique disease where the disease symptoms and the burden um, on patients is really extreme, especially upon disease presentation. And then I think the other thing is, is that we've made such great strides in terms of survival numbers, mm -hmm. you know, responses, and that's largely due to the fact that our therapies are so great. Um, but in some respect, it's sort of like a double-edged sword, because I think one of the things that we're telling our patients is, is that you're living longer, but yet you're still not technically cured. And with all of that, there's a lot there. Like there's a lot to kind of unravel for our patients because we're essentially telling them that they have this disease burden that they're going to be dealing with, with this chronic cancer for a long period of time. And not only that, they have to still take therapy for all of these years. And for, so, you know, there's no, there's not a finite amount of time that they sort of stop therapy. They're generally on therapy for a long period of time. So, you know, it's this emotional burden. It's a financial burden because of the, the cost of these therapies and then the toxicities associated with those chronic therapies so I think that that's probably why we we see such a huge impact on quality of life for our patients. I completely, completely agree. And as you said very well, you know, it's not just disease, it's also the treatments as well. And I agree. I think even our, our more sophisticated newer molecular therapies or immune-based therapies have the small molecule inhibitors have done so much for our patients, but they're living longer, but these new therapies come with unique side effects. I will say that, you know, I... Often in my mind, I believe that the more intensive the therapy, the worse the quality of life is, at least in the short term. You know, I mean, I so you know here with transplant, for example, stem cell transplant, I often think that all right, if you choose transplant versus no transplant for a patient, the more intense the therapy, the worse they feel, at least in the short term, before they get longer. As you've pointed out in some of your prior works, it's not always the case. More therapy is not always worse quality of life. Can you give some examples of that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, it, just like you said, I think when we kind of think about it, we think, okay, the more drugs you add on as soon as, especially since we're going into this area or uh, era of quadruplets, triplets, um, how is that really impacting the patient? I think one of the things is, is that number one, a patient's body is very sort of individualized. So in the sense that it's such a complex system of, of, um, you know, uh, organ systems coming together and how, how we sort of, uh, understand how patients are really experiencing some of those side effects, I think we can kind of do a better job of, of really understanding what they're going through. Um, but I think, you know, when a patient has a, a, a high disease burden to begin with, and you're throwing on therapy that is very efficacious, immediately you're going to get some sort of benefit for, for this patient. And I think one of the things is, is that it's a balance between what that particular therapeutic agent is offering in terms of efficacy and reducing the disease symptom burden versus what side effects they bring to the table. So I think if you're kind of looking at it, you know, not to kind of call out you know, certain agents, but, you know, if you look at daratumumab, for example, it's such a great therapy to add because the bang for your buck of really, you know, decreasing the myeloma disease burden symptoms. And then it's not re really necessarily adding too much in terms of toxicity, especially from a subcutaneous, you know, administration point of view. It just, it, it tends to work well for patients. And I think we see examples of that through Maya, you know, uh, trial data when they're looking at quality of life, as well as um, even just simply Aspire when you're looking at carfilzomib. It's such a great agent in terms of efficacy that it sort of, uh, you know, diminishes the disease burden symptoms right away. One thing I kind of wanted to bring out since we're on the, the topic of, you know, which agents are bringing what to the party when we mm -hmm. consider these combination therapies is that I think in the field, we talk about this all the time. All of our backbone therapies have dexamethasone, totally you know, in, in, the, in it. And I'd like to see our field kind of move away from dexamethasone, especially in our elderly patients. They really seem to impact the quality of life of how patients are sort of experiencing their day-to-day um, you know, symptom burden. So, you know, I think there, if there's one thing I'd like to see us get away from is, you know, at least really starting to address how we can get away from, from steroids. I love that. Agreed. And I think that the biggest study of steroid dosing in my was probably over a decade old, right? Where they did the high dose decks, like 40 milligrams for like four days on four days off versus once a week. And I think the quote unquote lower dex dose group, um, I think had both improved survival and better symptoms fatigue, but 40 of decks every week is still a lot. Um, do, do you often go down to 20 milligrams weekly and, and more of your patients than just the older, frailer ones, or the kind of you play it by ear and discuss with them the benefits and risks of it? I tend to play it by ear and discuss the benefits. It really depends on the situation, um, but I'm very proactive about it in my older patients because I feel as if it's really affecting them and their sort of ability to kind of get through, you know, life, the day to day, especially their sleep. So, um, yeah, totally agree. Especially fatigue in my mind is one of those symptoms that 
I wouldn't think that once a week medication affects fatigue throughout the week, but when you talk to patients, they're like, oh, I can definitely, Mondays are my worst days because it's my steroid days and Tuesdays are terrible. Tuesday through Friday is terrible. Sunday's great. Monday's bad again. And I agree. I think we can do better and hopefully our generation will help move those trials along that make that a more a commonplace thing for our patients. I think one of those things, it, it, the way you're, you're explaining it is right. It's almost the up and down, which is troublesome for some of our patients rather than the steady, even flow. So, you know, again, I, and, and steroids seem to have such a big impact on that. So yeah, I, I really hope we start to generate some data to get away from steroids. Agreed. And conversely, I'll just echo what you said about Dara, Dara Tumimab, I think has really been a game changer here. I mean, I, I'm young enough, but also old enough to remember we didn't, when we didn't have DARA on our inpatient formulary. So our inpatients who are obviously feeling the crummy as they have the most symptoms, newly diagnosed myeloma, were not able to get their tumor as part of their induction, and now they are. And I definitely think it's amazing that that's an option for them because you're right, that first cycle is where if you move quickly, you can actively remove the symptoms, the pain, the fatigue, the, the, the kidney issues that are causing the bulk of their symptoms and actually make, make them feel better, not just within months, but within weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so then maybe I'll pivot slightly uh, you know, into quality of life measurements and surrogates for quality of life. I mean, quality of life, as you know better than anyone, is uh, you know, there's like a dozen possible instruments out there and all of them are, most of them are long. You know, survey fatigue is an issue. You've looked at wearable actigraphy. So, you know, smart devices or smart watches or physical activity monitors is a surrogate for quality of life. That's an easier tool for patients to just wear and go on with their lives. Can you tell us a bit more about that research? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're actually still in the process of, of compiling it and, um, you know, putting the final touches on the publication. Um, but one of the things that we noticed through this, so what we did in this study was actually we took newly diagnosed myeloma patients um, that were treatment naive and into two different groups, young cohort and an older cohort. And we used age 65 as a cutoff. And we took the time to get some baseline data in terms of how are they moving, activity, steps, sleep, and then as well as we did those traditional uh, patient-reported outcome surveys that we've been using in the myeloma field for, for over decades. Um, so what we did was then we followed these patients with these wearable devices for six months continuously, 24-7, um, and essentially got a bunch of different data coming back at us. So it's taken us a while to kind of go through everything. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's kind of striking that when you look at the findings is, is that, you know, it's, it's pretty intuitive. You, you actually see from an objective standpoint that step count and activity is improving when you compare baseline um, data to patients once they're on treatment. They, you know, they do sort of this recoverability where activity goes up. What's interesting is, is that you see it more of a profound effect in the older patients. So patients that at baseline that were, you know, their, their ages are older. So the older, the, the older cohort, but their baseline activity steps is very diminished. And one thing that that tells me is, is that, you know, their reserve, their fragility, their frailty index is lower. So they're very much impacted by disease burden symptoms. And as soon as you start treatment, you actually can objectively see that their step counts and their activity are increasing. So it's kind of neat from that perspective. 
And the second point that we actually saw in our data set was, was that when you look at activity, there seems to be some association with um, reduction of disease burden symptoms. So there's an inverse relationship there. Um, there also seems to be a direct relationship between physical functioning scores from the patient reported outcome surveys, and then also in an improvement in terms of global health scores. So there is some relationship there that patients are moving better, you know, increased activity. And we actually see this relationship on some of these global health scores. So it's kind of intriguing to sort of see that, you know, we're in the middle of looking at the sleep data as well. We see some really interesting intracyclic differences in sleep patterns when you're looking at patients that um, when they're getting their dexamethasone um, days versus no when they're not getting their dexamethasone days. So you can actually pick up some of that. Um, so it's, it's kind of um, an interesting data set to analyze. I think one of the things is, is that that's great that, you know, we use these tools. Where do you sort of see this all going? You know, I'd be curious if we can take some of this data eventually and then create some sort of index score or sort of really understanding real time how patients are feeling, moving, how that actually is translating into their quality of life. And I'd like to sort of be able to explore that a little bit more in terms of whether or not if, for instance, increased activity can actually influence how patients are, are doing in terms of quality of life. So not just so much as a surrogate, but can we actually go the opposite direction where we're really truly like benefiting the patients and benefiting their quality of life. So I think that relationship is, is kind of interesting. And that gets into this whole thing of, you know, the difference between passive monitoring with these digital wearables versus active monitoring. And, you know, active monitoring implies that if we use a digital wearable or a digital therapeutic, we're actually influencing the patient's outcome in some kind of way. Um, so th that's kind of what I'm most excited to sort of see and explore this relationship. Agreed. And I'll just add, I didn't realize it was 24-7 monitoring. I mean, we make decisions based on how we presume patients' physical activity is all the time, right? Transplant eligibility versus uneligibility, ECOG performance status or so forth. Do you see a, a role where this might actually help in some of those treatment determinations from the provider side? Yeah, that's kind of where I'm wondering if they could potentially go down the line. And mm -hmm. I mean, it does sort of imply if you're getting little bits of data every you know minute to an hour, and then how that kind of compiles into you know decision making, whether or not that should influence. Do we go up on the decks? Do we go down on the decks? Do we go up on this dose? Do we go down on this dose? And you can kind of as you kind of go through it, the possibilities are sort of endless. As okay. long as we have a, a, a tracker to track or monitor, you know, a particular symptom or a side effect. For instance, if we had a tool that could really help us measure neuropathy, you know, in real yeah. time and what that what that's doing to a patient. I'm not saying such a tool exists yet, but but if it did, that would be kind of interesting. We could use that to sort of influence our decision-making, you know, capability in the clinic. And I think it would actually end up helping patients because it's almost tailor-made to what's going on in their situation, you know? Mm -hmm. Completely agreed. So maybe the last question I'll ask is kind of pivoting to you. You mentioned passive versus active monitoring and, and tools that can actually be used as digital therapeutics. So that can range from, in my mind, everything from 
yeah, like a Fitbit that tells you, or I should say a device that tells you how you're walking to a smart pill bottle that helps you remember to take your lenalidomide to, you know, digital coaching or, or cognitive behavioral therapy delivered through an app. Are there particular digital therapeutics that you're working on or that you're excited about or both in the coming decade? Yeah, absolutely. So two sort of situations pop into my mind. One of them is is more in the maintenance phase when patients are sort of um, doing a reset, you know, post-transplant, they, they're on their maintenance, they're kind of getting readjusted to this new way of life. And it's almost as if they've gone through this whole tremendous year of, you know, experiencing this onslaught of getting a diagnosis, going through induction, then going through, you know, transplant, as you are well aware with your digital uh, coaching um, experiences and research, it's so traumatic to the patient. Mm -hmm. And by the time you come around to explaining to them about maintenance therapy, it's almost as if you have to walk them through a mind reset. And I think that there's a lot that we can do there in terms of really addressing quality of life. And I think that, you know, there could be, for instance, a digital health application tool where patients are really, you know, honing in and connecting with their patient peers, possibly getting diet and nutrition and exercise tips, kind of a real connection hub that's online, that's, you know, sort of on the go monitoring you. And I really kind of wonder how something like that can actually improve healthcare outcomes for our patients and sort of get them to this new sort of reset. Um, The second thing I think, which is completely fascinating is, you know, as we move into this era of CAR T cells versus bispecifics, Mm -hmm. we have, you know, um, we're so uh, adept at giving these therapies in the hospital as inpatient. And as you sort of, as you guys are aware of, um, because you know, it would be interesting to see how some of this can be done as an outpatient and what digital tools can be done, you know, in terms of outpatient monitoring therapy. For instance, is there a digital signature or a scripture that suggests an early CRS onset, onset or a CRS severity index that would imply that we should have a therapeutic intervention early on? Um, so I think that these things are sort of fascinating if we can use digital wearables to actually treat patients or make some, you know, informed clinical decision. I, I love that. And I, I totally agree. And I think, you know, when people give the counter argument that, well, who's going to pay for this, you know, new wearable tool, I would argue that saving the patient one night in the hospital probably pays for itself in terms of the cost of this uh, digital technology for them. Yeah. Great. Um, this has been very, very informative. I loved your analogy about the resetting, you know, how patients live their life. I use the analogy kind of helping patients to regain control of their lives as they move into the maintenance setting, but the same principle applies. Such a profound difference for them that I think both in this relapsed CAR-T by specific space and then the, you know, just things are going according to plan moving into maintenance. I think there's a lot of unmet need and I think a lot of potential for digital health there. Um, Thank you again, Dr. Corday, for your time. This was very eye-opening for all of us. Uh, and to everyone in the audience, thank you for listening. I am Dr. Banerjee, and this has been Oncology Data Advisor. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to Oncology Data Advisor. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. In addition to our podcast, the Oncology Data Advisor site features expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatments. 
all found at onkdata.com.